0: I'm going to begin our exploration of uh, these teachings of (coughs) of loving-kindness and compassion, uh, focusing primarily on metta, or loving-kindness, which is the quality of our hearts and our minds that is uh, warm and friendly and open. And often this word metta is translated as loving-kindness, which is a great translation, but a more accurate translation actually is basic friendliness. How we bring friendliness to ourselves and uh, the situation we find ourselves in in our lives and and really the world, right? And metta is the first of these four Brahma-viharas that I mentioned at the beginning of the day. So um, the term Brahma-vihara translates as divine abode. So I think of these four qualities as the places that we would want our minds and hearts to live if conditions were ideal. But conditions are not always ideal, right? So our hearts and our minds naturally manifest uh, as loving and kind, as compassionate, as joyful, and as equanimous when we're not startled or angry or confused. They naturally manifest that way. But then we spend a lot of our lives, of course, startled and, and angry and confused. So then what? Um, and this basic quality of friendliness and openness of love and kindness, when it meets pain or challenge in life, it manifests as compassion. And when the basic friendliness and openness of love and kindness meets joy, uh, it manifests as joy and the happiness of us all. You know, and not just mine only. And I think of loving kindness as equally balanced with equanimity. Because equanimity is the quality of our mind and our hearts that is grounded, balanced, um, spacious, inclusive, and it says, oh yeah, today the worst day ever. You know, yesterday the best day ever. This cycle of life, really, really hard. You know this part of the world, amazing, and it can hold the whole thing. And that's kind of the, the heart and mind of equanimity. Um, so when we have that kind of steadiness, then we can be more open and friendly to you know everyone, basically. So when the Buddha taught about loving kindness, you'll often hear this quote. It's very famous. You know, it said, "Oh, the Buddha looked the whole world over, and there was no one more worthy." That uh, he saw of love and kindness than oneself, you know, which is super inspiring as an idea. But it's only the first half of the quote, which is interesting. The rest of the quote says, you know, that the basically the Buddha said, "I visited the whole world with my mind, and uh, I didn't find anyone else more dear than myself." And he said, "You know, the truth is, is that w- one who loves themselves completely." Would never intentionally harm another. Mm-hmm. So you think, well, why? You know, why would I want to be sending this to myself first? What about you know all the different places on the planet that there are red alerts going off right now? Uh, well, you know, no one else is more dear, and the more uh, friendliness we bring here, the more friendliness we bring out. And if we're committed to uh, creating and sustaining a planet of non-harming in all ways, we have to start at home. that was very hard for me uh, I started meditating when I was in my late teens <laughs> and I will uh, openly confess to you that these whole uh, the insight meditation instructions or vipassana you know a teacher would suggest to me oh find your breath and track your breath the same way I suggested to you at the meditation forget it I came into meditation out of a, um, a family life and a personal life of wreckage There was so much pain that was inspiring the reason that I thought, I need to calm down and breathe. You know, I'm anxious, I'm stressed, I'm traumatized. Uh, I need to calm down and breathe. And so somebody taught me how to meditate. But what I did for years, more years than you'd ever guess, was I just sat down and tried to remain seated and still and not run out of the room yelling, you know? find my breath, forget it, I couldn't land attention in my body there was too much struggle going on in there you know. and then when I did land my attention in the body, what I noticed was the armoring that I mentioned in the meditation instructions it was just, you know my body at that time was very, very young but it was this massive pain there was all these tensions and holdings in the shoulders and the back, and it was just totally unpleasant. I thought, how am I going to keep going with this? I know it's helpful. I feel there's something very special with this. I know I need to learn these tools, but this is hard. Fortunately, um, I'm a bit of an extremist, so I started my retreat career young, and uh, I thought, you know, day-longs were great. How about a week-long Uh, you know, stay for a week, meditate, sit and walk all day. Week-longs were great, so then I went, you know, immediately and did a six-week, and it just went on from there. Uh, Because I was desperate for peace. You know, and what I was desperate for that I didn't know I was desperate for was kindness and friendliness. Uh, So I had a teacher that said, Heather, you know, I think that you should just be practicing loving-kindness all the time. And I said, what? What? Loving kindness, you know, you mean like this? <laughs> Yee, loving kind I'm like no. They said, no, no, no. That's not it. Loving kindness, uh and it's interesting because this is the way they taught it to me and uh, now I'm very passionate about these practices, so you know, teach them the same way. It comes out of the tradition. Loving kindness practice is a practice of intention. So we're not saying be nice all the time, be nice meditators. We're not looking for that. We're looking for real, you know. Um, So it's a process of intention, setting our intention towards kindness. And I would say whether, no matter what form of meditation, no matter what form of life we're in the middle of, an intention for kindness could be very helpful. And then we're actually collecting our minds around that intention. So traditionally, and the way I was taught, was that we uh, use phrases of well-wishing for that. And the phrases for well-wishing often have something to do with safety, happiness, strength or health, and ease of well-being. And so there's a collection or concentration of the mind around this basic friendliness. And then what happens is a process of purification. <coughs> and to me, this was the key because, uh, you know, I looked at that teacher and said, "You want me to wish for safety for myself? The conditions I'm involved in do not are not supporting a lot of physical safety right now. You know, so how can I wish myself and other people safety? How can I wish people in countries where there's war safety? They're not safe." they are being harmed how can I do this, no no it's a process of purification so everything that ever comes up that um, inhibits our hearts and our minds from moving in that direction gets presented to us and we get to work with that material and it's really painful you know, I, I used to think, I can't wish myself happiness, that's cheating if I only suffer enough then I'll be free right, no you know, I could we could incline our minds towards happiness. It's not cheating. Or this thing about what does ease of well being mean? What does it mean in a real life? You know, where things aren't always easy. But we can collect our minds there. And it's interesting because now I teach one of the Meta retreats every winter. Uh, I teach the Meta retreat at Spirit Rock with Sylvia Borstein and a bunch of other teachers there. And every year, someone will come in and say to me, Heather, Heather, I'm trying to do this, but I can't do this. I'm wishing myself the, the phrases of loving and kindness, and I say to myself, may I be protected and safe? And all I feel is how completely unsafe I feel. Can you please help me? I'm doing this wrong. And I say to them, no, you're doing it exactly right. You just created enough space and enough friendliness for you to feel the inherent sense of unsafety that we all feel sometimes. You know, so it's actually included, and we can breathe that in and include that. You know, and that's why it takes a lot of equanimity. We have to have the, our ground, and we've got to have enough space to include everything so that we can be uh, shaken by you know waves of meta-bliss. You know, oh no, I don't deserve that. Yes, we do. But if we're looking for that every time We're practicing loving kindness It's going to fail Because nothing's every time, of course Um, So we can open You know, so that was my journey I did lots and lots of long retreats I was a passionate participant Of the two-month retreat at Spirit Rock For about a decade It's in February and March every year At least half those years I was doing loving kindness, compassion, joy And equanimity practice While everybody else was watching their breath And for me, that was what was needed. Um, But what I learned through that is that there is no difference, really, between loving kindness and mindfulness. Uh, They're exactly the same. Mindfulness isn't mature if it doesn't have a spirit of kindness. For being mindful, 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 sensation, thought, I can't believe I'm having this thought, and then we're not mindful of that, that's not kind. It's like a mature mindfulness has kindness. A mature kindness has mindfulness because it takes a tremendous capacity to be open to the purification process of everything that isn't kind. You know, oh, I wished them well and then I thought about how much I hated them for the next three minutes. You know, am I doing it wrong? No, not at all. We just created ourselves space to be with the fact that our minds get resentful because, you know, we cause harm and they cause harm and then we develop a burning resentment and you know it's like what is resentment it's like carrying a hot coal you know who's getting burned ourselves or them hard to say so it was no surprise to me after i'd done this practice for a while to hear the story of how the buddha developed it and i'm sure that some of you are familiar with this story Think of some of these well-known stories almost as kind of a, uh, Buddhist bedtime stories. <laughs> so it's not bedtime, but it's almost lunch. Uh, and, and even though I say, you know, Buddhist stories, of course, no one is required to identify with anything, uh, and certainly not being a Buddhist to be here. So the way that the story goes is that there were a group of monks, and they went on rains retreat every year, three-month retreat. And uh, part of the reason Rain's Retreat was Rain's Retreat in India Is because there's monsoon uh, And you actually can't travel It's still very hard to travel in India during monsoon uh, But back then I'm sure it was even more difficult So to stop and have a place and be on retreat Was you know, a skillful use of time While it was raining and muddy and moldy <coughs> And kind of generally horrible So they went up into the uh, foothills of the Himalayas not sure exactly where this group of monks uh, were, but you know, just to put it in context, uh, foothills of the Himalayas. Uh, for example, Darmsala, where His Holiness the Dalai Lama lives, foothills of the Himalayas. We're talking eight thousand feet there, uh, so it's quite high. They found a village where the villagers were happy to take them in, and even built them kutis or huts where they could meditate. They settled in. Everything looked great. They were ready to go. The perfect spot to meditate. How many times have you found that? The perfect posture to meditate. Now everything will be great. But, you know, what happens? Uh, Life on life's terms. So, the way the story goes was there was a group of uh, devas. That loosely translates for us westerners as angels, but we could all kind of just whatever you believe in, it's these unseen forces, right? The things we can't actually see with our eyes, but Anyway, I'm not asking you to believe anything As the story goes There's this group of devas that lived in that forest And they were quite happy to welcome the monks For a couple of days But had no idea that the monks were planning to stay for three months Once they realized that the monks weren't leaving They got quite upset Somebody had invaded their turf You know how it is You're sitting on your cushion And somebody moves it Or you know they're sitting too close So the devas got upset And uh, started trying to do things to get rid of these mucks. So the first thing they did was produce frightening sounds. uh, And then that didn't work. So you can imagine, you know, being in the forest and it's nighttime and crack, crack, crunch. What's going on? You get, you know, scared. Then they tried frightening smells. I have no idea what those were. (laughs) You can imagine. Uh, And then uh, produced frightening images. Finally, the monks got so scared and startled and just generally upset by the whole thing that they ran down the hill to find their teacher and said, you know, teacher, teacher, you have to send us to another place to meditate. This place is no good. I can't meditate here. And, you know, how many times have we thought that? It's too loud. It's too hot. It's, you know, my mind's too crazy. I can't meditate here. I can't meditate now. So the monks did that too and uh you know what did the buddha say? the buddha said no no friends it's okay you know you've got the perfect place to meditate up there and have i got a practice for you you just wait it's called loving kindness you know? And so he taught the metta sutta or the teaching on loving kindness um and the way that we actually practice it traditionally um, now was developed by another monk about a thousand years later named Buddha Gosa, who took the teachings the Buddha gave that had been documented and kind of put them into a format with some phrases that we'll be doing later uh, in this whole process. So the monks went back up the hill, continued their meditation practice, and it's said that um, they radiated so much kindness and friendliness towards all the difficulties of the devas, that the devas transformed and became their protectors. Now, that might not seem real relevant in 2011 in Santa Cruz, California, but I think it is. Because what if those devas were in us? You know, what if those devas were our hidden self hatred, or the burning resentment, or the doubt? And we brought that level of kindness, and friendliness, and openness in and allow those things to transform and become our, prote- our protectors, basically. Because the way that I look at our defensive systems these days is that um, I look at them as skills that we learned when we were too young to have access to other tools. You know, our basic defensive structure, uh, and each one of us has our own kind of unique flavor of that, uh, they're old, and we actually developed these habits to protect our hearts and some, for some of us to save our lives. When we didn't have other tools available to us, you know, we didn't have the capacity, or we won't, weren't old enough, or whatever it was. But there's so much caring that actually built those defensive structures. You know, The ways that we push others away, or, or you know, get too sucked in, or all the different things we do such caring built those and they're just a little out of date we, we forgot to upgrade you know um, and so if we can bring that friendliness and kindness and openness to these out of date systems that are still running our lives uh, then transformation is not only possible it will happen you know? and we know it we know it so, you know, I told you a little bit about my meta story. Uh, but what I know is that every one of us has a metta story. One of the books I think that actually needs to come out in the next few years, Sylvia and I, Sylvia Borstein and I have been talking about this, is you know, we teach this metta retreat every year, and everyone comes in and tells us those stories of transformation through loving kindness. They're incredible stories. Mm-hmm. The power of this practice. So I've got this book title in my head, The Power of Metta. And just everybody's stories, our community stories, ordinary stories, extraordinary stories, and it's interesting because you know part of the process that we move through as as we cultivate these practices, you know, these qualities of heart are inherent, no matter what we've done or haven't done. Uh, Given the right conditions, they will shine forth—kindness, yeah. compassion, joy, equanimity. But as we move through the process of intention and purification and, and training, you know we get to run into all these edges. And I just want to mention a kind of a couple of the traditional edges that come up with our metta practice, whether on the cushion or in our lives. And one of them traditionally is called the near enemy of loving kindness, but that seems a little outdated as language to me. So I like to call it that which masculates as loving kindness. And what the quality is, is a kind of selfish affection. So whenever we're running against the edges of loving kindness, we're usually running up against me, you know. And of course, it's all about me, right? It always is, it always was, it always will be. And each one of us is running around telling the same story and believing it. It's all about me. Sometimes I just look around and realize that we've all got these little bubbles above our head. And they're all going, me, 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 you know. And we do that. We forget that there's actually us. usness, Not just me-ness, but us-ness. So the kind of selfish affection is a genuine friendliness and openness and warmth. Plus me plus a kind of self-obsession. And I found an interesting story about this recently. It was in a a novel that I read, and I didn't actually write down the name of the novel, but the character was fascinating in terms of this selfish affection. Her name was Marion. And uh, the story was set in a Home for the Elderly, and she was in, at the time of the story, in advanced stages of M.S., and one of the nurses was asking her kind of about her life and she was telling her story and she said that her whole life she had this MO of being kind and I think this one's really interesting for our kind of meditation communities because there can be this idea of I must be kind when I'm here but then there's this huge disconnect of when we go home and then we judge ourselves and we can't bridge it so it's like how do we find a kindness that's authentic I think this story is very um, apropos to that. So her thing was she was always trying to be kind, be the kindest mother, be the kindest wife, be the kindest friend, and she couldn't understand why things kept going wrong in her life. She had a story: if only I'm kind, then everything will be okay. Uh, and we all have a story like that, you know. If only I could be filling your own blank, then everything would be okay. We all have a story like that. Hers was kind, Um, so you know things went wrong for her. Her husband left her. Her kids were getting in trouble with the law. Um, Part of that was because she was being so nice. She didn't set appropriate boundaries for them. You know, and this thing about like kindness with boundaries. Yeah, here we are, 2011, Uh, and then she got MS and she got sick. And her first response was to try to be a kind hero. I'm okay. You don't have to take care of me, you know. Um, But of course, MS, you know, (coughs) is a devastating illness. And she got worse and worse. And finally she had to let go. She had to let go of being that hero, that kind hero. And um, people started taking care of her. And what she noticed was as her children started taking care of her, They started to take more responsibility for her. And then they started to take more responsibility for their lives. And, you know, there's actually like a spirit of kindness in the family that was more authentic. But her real aha moment uh, was later after her daughter had had a child. So it was her granddaughter. Um, And she was talking to her granddaughter. Her granddaughter was about eight years old. And she was listening to her granddaughter and being very nice, being the nice grandma, right? And the granddaughter turns and looks at her and says, You're not listening to me. Mm-hmm. And Marion goes, What? And she thought about it and she realized, Wow, my granddaughter's right. I'm just trying to be the kind grandmother. I'm not listening. And it totally woke her up. And she took on this practice, it's not a dharma book, so she didn't say a practice, but she took on this practice of being interested in people only for the sake of being interested and not about her and how she looked and, and how people thought of her. And she said, to, you know, at this time of the story, even to this day, she has to be very careful to watch for that masquerading quality. I think that's a very interesting meta practice, to be interested for the sake of being interested. The kind of opposite quality of loving kindness that we all run into is the process of purification are these qualities of anger, or ill will, or even hatred. And there's nothing more humbling than trying to bring a spirit of kindness to someone or something, and then what pops up is this intense hatred more strong than we've ever felt in our whole lives. And if we take it personally and go, wow, I'm a really hateful person, which of course isn't a kind thing to do, uh, it's very, very painful. You know? But it's part of the process, because the truth is, is, We all carry the seeds of enlightenment in our heart and we all carry the seeds of hatred in our heart. And, you know, they can bloom according to conditions. So, that actually reminds me of a, a story from the Cherokee tradition about a grandfather and his grandson. And his grandson was, you know, they were sitting, they were talking, and the grandfather said, you know, I've got two wolves inside of me, and they're at war. And the grandson said, well, grandfather, you know, what are, what are the wolves? What do they stand for? Why are they at war? And the grandfather said, well, you know, one wolf stands for uh, hatred and self-doubt and resentment <coughs> and fear, and, you know, fill in the blank with all the stuff that you grapple with. And the other wolf stands for love and kindness and generosity and truthfulness and fill in the blank with all the beautiful qualities that we're cultivating here. So the grandson of course looked at the grandfather and said, well grandfather, which wolf wins? You know, and the grandfather looked at him and he said, you know which wolf wins? The one I feed. The one I feed wins. So that's why I feel like if we can bring this spirit of kindness any moment, it doesn't matter which moment, and it doesn't matter towards whom or what, then we're feeding that capacity for you know an awakened heart that's friendly and open and kind in the face of conditions. So as I said, this topic is a, a passion for I me and I could go on at some length, but I think I will finish with this poem and and just to know that this afternoon we'll be um, practicing with this loving kindness in a formal way and then in an informal way with our walk to the beach uh, and that uh, Jason will be talking a bit about the flavor of compassion or this friendliness meeting suffering. We'll do some formal practice with that too, which is one of my favorites, the compassion practice. So this poem is called Finally, and it's by Persia Gerstler. Finally on my way to yes, I burn into all the places where I said no to my life. All the unintended wounds the red and purple scars, those hieroglyphs of pain carved into my skin and bones, those coded messages that sent me down the wrong street. Again and again, where I find them, the old wounds, the old misdirections, and I lift them, one by one, close to my heart, and I say, holy, holy, so that's what I have to offer for your reflection. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.